0: Today is September 19th, two thousand and eleven, and my guest is Alex Rosenberg, the R. Taylor Cole Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. Alex, welcome to econ Talk.
1: thanks. it's great to be with you Russ
0: in nineteen ninety four in an essay titled "If economics isn't a Science, what is it?" you wrote a, a, a very interesting essay. I want to read a couple of quotes from it as our jumping off part uh, jumping off point. here's the first one quote. The ability to predict and control may be neither necessary nor sufficient criteria for cognitively respectable scientific theories. But the fact is that microeconomic theory has made no advances in the management of economic processes since its current formalism was first elaborated in the 19th century. You also wrote – that's the end of the quote. You also wrote, quote, Euclidean geometry was once styled the science of space, but calling it a science did not make it one – We have come to view advances in the axiomatization and extension of geometry as events not in science but in mathematics. Economics is often defined as the science of the distribution of scarce resources, but calling it a science does not make it one. For much of their history, since 1800, advances in both these disciplines have consisted in improvements of deductive rigor, economy, and elegance of expression, in better axiomatizations, and in the proofs of more and more general results without much concern as to the usefulness – Of these results. Uh, Very dramatic statements, uh, and I'm curious if you still feel that way. Uh, If you do, please elaborate on those ideas, and if you don't, why don't you?
1: Well, that's very interesting. I have to go back and say, first thing is that I said those two things not in 1994, but in 1984. Oh, thank you. And... um, Uh, By 1994, I might already have been prepared somewhat to qualify them. I think that they were very accurate as claims about uh, economics in the 70s and by the mid-80s. I think, of course, there were exceptions, and I think these exceptions have, in the last 20 years drawn more and more attention and had a greater and greater impact on the nature of economics as a discipline. Um, and I think I'd have to say on the one hand that uh, with qualifications, I'm still um, sympathetic to the view about standards for science and scientific progress that stood at the background of those two points. Um, and on the other hand, uh I have recognized changes in economic science since that time that make it at least somewhat less um, susceptible of that kind of analysis, not to say critique. Uh, I would be more specific and point to uh, the increased thought about the nature of uh, choice under uncertainty and asymmetries uh, of information characterized by the work, for example, of Akerlof most uh, famously, uh, the interest in experimental economics um, that secured for Vernon Smith a Nobel Prize, um, uh, and most of all the impact of Kahneman and Tversky and cognitive social psychology um, on the way in which economists think about uh, microeconomic uh, processes um, of which perhaps the most widely known example is the Vishny and Schleifer uh, paper on the limits to arbitrage. All of these suggest that to varying degrees economics as a discipline has uh, been increasingly sensitive to the kind of charges, not as I laid them because I think that economists have generally been uh, indifferent to what philosophers have said about uh, the subject, um, but much more sensitive to these kinds of charges uh, over the last 20 years and much more responsive to developments in other parts of social science um, that have made economics less, how shall I say, guilty of the kind of um, uh uh, hermetic insulation uh, from uh, the demands of application that that quote the, both of those quotes that you started with um, uh, articulate.
0: That may be, but it is still true. I I think that formal economic theory has is still subject to the critique that you made there. It's true that economics is quote practiced by economists has gotten a little less um, uh, axiomatic, you might say. And I think the behavioral economics uh, literature is an example of that. But I guess my question would be that behavioral literature, uh, I don't see how it's made economics any more scientific in its ability to predict and uh, measure. Or am I missing your point?
1: Um, It's clear that the discipline of economics is only now taking on and trying to figure out how to um, reshape its theory to uh, take account of the factors that behavioral economics, evolutionary economics, and experimental economics have introduced, um, and that at least in areas like financial economics, um, the traditional... Valrasian post valrasian neoclassical paradigm continues to be the dominant uh, force. Um, if you look at the kind of intellectual cachet that people like Eugene Fama have um, or that other um, uh, uh, Chicago freshwater school economists have um, in, say, uh, business schools and in uh, the theory of finance, uh, financial economics, that there the paradigm still seems to be um, of the Walrasian sort that I was criticizing in those quotes. The, the role of equilibrium thinking uh, continues to be the same as it was uh, back then, and although the word Austrian no longer has the kind of demonic... Um, <laughs> um, uh, 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 possession is a nice yeah. <laughs> next uh, next word, but I didn't mean possession, the, the, the demonic halo that it used to have when um, economists would talk about people like von Mises and um, uh, Schumpeter and even Hayek. Uh, still, um, the, the, the standard neoclassical approach does seem to me to, uh, although it it still holds the field, but it's at any rate much more defensive than it was when I wrote those things about it in the 80s. And of course, I did hold and and develop much the same view in a book I published in the early 90s called called Economics, Mathematical Politics, or Science of Diminishing Returns, which. In its title, of course, reflects the very theses that you quoted from the 1984 paper.
0: Uh, explain for for the uh, non specialist what you mean by Valrasian, pre-Valrasian, post-Valrasian equilibrium approach. Well, what's the essence of of the economist view there?
1: If we go back to Adam Smith um, in uh, the economics, which owes its um, existence and its intellectual pedigree to the wealth of nations, um, uh, starts with the hidden hand or the invisible hand, um, according to which we do not owe our well-being to the benevolence of the butcher and the baker, but to his self-interest, and the idea that um, each individual pursuing their own uh, narrow self-interest produces an outcome that is of uh, benefit to the entire uh, society, the the market price system um, and its allocative efficiency is an idea which, though Smith originated it, uh, economists set about trying to prove thereafter formally, and it was only Walras who thought that he had finally proved it by uh, arguing that in an economy in which uh, supply and demand in each market could be uh, equilibriated um, such that there were the same number of equations of equilibrium for as there were numbers of goods to be uh, supplied and demanded, that under such circumstances there would be a unique market-clearing um, allocatively efficient price uh, and the proof that Valra thought he had produced, of course, was not entirely adequate, and it took another 70 years or so before um, Abraham Wald, uh, in the late 30s, produced another version uh, uh, of this proof, and still that was not entirely uh, accepted in the profession, uh, and nothing... Uh, until the late fifties, until De and Arrow produced a formal proof of the uh Pareto optimality of the um, uh of the unique and stable equilibrium in all prices that characterized a perfectly free market economy. And um, that unique stable equilibrium continues to be a kind of a combination litmus test and um, uh, 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 touchstone of economic theorizing the mathematical economics continues to to be pursued on the understanding that the objective is to establish always the partial or the general equilibrium outcome, um, of a economic ex- process, um, uh, so that the way in which we understand the dynamic continually changing economy is as a series of, um, uh, price and quantity vectors that if only for the, uh, if only, uh, exogenous forces, uh, could be uh, held at bay, would come to an equilibrium and are constantly adjusting themselves back in the direction of an equilibrium from the interference or the the existence of these exogenous forces. So that economics, uh, uh, mainstream neoclassical economics, continues to be invested in the intellectual importance, the explanatory role of uh, General equilibrium, um, even though it recognizes that that equilibrium never actually obtains,
0: kind um, of awkward, isn't it? It's a um, it's a certain uh, requires a certain intellectual schizophrenia, which I, I want well, to try. Well, but they would
1: respond. What they would respond, and here I speak in defense of of mainstream theories that uh, if you look at mark markets, the one thing you notice is that almost never will a change in one price result in a catastrophic. Uh, explosion of all prices so as to produce chaos. The only time that we know of that this happens is in the hyperinflations of Weimar, Germany, or maybe um, Zimbabwe under Mugabe. Um, And they will argue, therefore, that the assumption of stability is one that's so well established that no theory can be taken seriously unless it has stability as one of its uh, implications and that at least the uh, uh, the market clearing uh, uh, uniquely uh, stable equilibrium has therefore a con- great deal to recommend it.
0: Well, there's there's a lot of stability in the real world. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I guess the question is, how much does economics explain of that? I have, I have a different perspective, I guess. Um, I, I don't understand. I, I'm going to put you in the awkward position now of Continuing to defend, uh, yes, right. defend the neoclassical approach, uh, ironic given that I'm a, a Chicago PhD um, who was trained in that in that tradition. Uh, but I, I think w- my challenge is to that to that claim, uh, the way you phrased it, is the following: a- Adam Smith said that good things happen despite the fact that some people don't have um, the best of motives or motives that we the purest of motives. They they're self interested and I think that's a very deep insight. He wasn't the first person to have that insight. It, it's a version of it's in, in – Mandeville and others. Right. But he said it in a way that resonated and stuck and he wrote well and he understood it perhaps in ways that – I think he definitely understood it in ways that they did not. So we have this this insight that good things happen sometimes despite the fact that people don't have the best motives. The fundamental question I have is what have we gained – through the sequence of Valra, I'd put Samuelson in there in 1948 with the foundations yes. of economic analysis, Arrow uh, and Debreu, who took that to a much uh, more theoretical level, I was going to say higher I'm not sure what the, what the right adjective is but to a different level, solved some of the problems as you mentioned um, we now have shown in some formal theoretical sense that yes there is a set of prices such that under certain circumstances, which never hold in the real world, um, uh, the letting people buy and sell freely is uh, ends up with a result that has some attractive characteristics. That's how I would describe what gets called uh, Pareto optimality or mm-hmm. the um, the various theorems of welfare economics.
1: No, I think all so, well, that's fair. And you ask, you want me to defend that?
0: Well, you could try. I, I think the. Or you could you could pile on, uh, but my my point is is that, uh, and this is where I want to get more into the philosophy of science. Um, what have we gained? What are the dimensions of what we might have gained? In other words, I don't see anything that's more predictable about the world, confirmable, measurable, testable about the world from those theories uh, relative right, so, relative to what we had before.
1: All right. Let me give you what I think as the best defense I can. And I have to say, frankly, I have been searching for a defense um, uh, for this character of the theory for a very long time because I'd rather um, find a good explanation for the tremendous uh, 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 admiration that so many very smart people have had for economics uh, over the last uh, 200 years, and particularly given its uh, 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 its imperialism, its methodological and substantive theoretical imperialism in the social sciences. I'm not impressed by the fact that there's a Nobel Prize for it. I know exactly why the Nobel Prize for it was created. It but is an economic in economic
0: sciences. Pardon me? <laughs> it is a prize. in yes, economic it sciences, economic exactly. Sciences.
1: There's a purely rhetorical yeah. um, uh, role that it plays. Um, but... Economics is a, a, a discipline in which a great deal of genius has been uh, labored, and it's uh, the default position has to be that it's an important uh, arena of intellectual achievement. So, let me see if I can at least give you part of an answer or as close as I can come to a satisfactory answer, an answer that's satisfactory to the economists, to your question. First of all, if we think about uh, mainstream economics, neoclassical economics, the economics that comes from Smith through Valra, uh, uh, Wald, Samuelson, uh Scarf, um, Hurwitz, uh, uh, Arrow, all of these great figures. Um, if we think about as institution design in the way that uh, 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 Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock uh, coined that term, then it has a really important role um, because uh, the proof of the allocative efficiency of the perfectly competitive market, which that equilibrium approach eventuates in, is a blueprint for organizing complex human societies in such a way as to produce the largest quantity of what people really want. And we have, of course, in the history of the 20th century, the short 20th century, we have a great deal of very positive empirical evidence for the claim that no other alternative way of uh, producing and distributing goods and services comes anywhere close to the free market and in its allocative efficiency, uh, and some of them are catastrophically bad at it. Um, and to the extent that Uh, the proof of the existence, ability, uniqueness of a general equilibrium is an important part of the argument for a certain set of institutions, economic institutions, then it is a powerful achievement. And when you add in that the proof and the assumptions of the proof, perfect divisibility, uh, no asymmetries of information, avoidance of externalities, uh, constant returns to scale, uh, uh, that the, when you add in the fact that that these assumptions in effect provide guidelines for government intervention in order to secure greater approximation to allocative efficiency, either by breaking up monopolies, or prohibiting insider trading, or forcing uh, polluters to internalize their externalities. Um, uh, when you think about the way in which this proof provides guidelines to government intervention in order to secure allocative efficiency you have still another powerful argument for the 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 applicability of this intellectual achievement but it's a very limited argument because as i said it's an argument that um uh Underwrites a certain set of institutional designs. Uh, and we want out of science something more than mere institutional design. We want actual prediction of events that we would like to control um, and to at least, uh, if not control, insulate or protect ourselves from. And there, of course, is where this version of uh, economics has not done as well as it needs to do in order to uh attain the standards that um other that the natural sciences and that biology have uh, attained. Now um people are uh often um Likely to, to, uh, deny that, say, a science like biology has great predictive power and that therefore economics, which has perhaps, which certainly has less predictive power than biology, nevertheless has a right to, uh, its place among the sciences. But I think in fact that if you If you think about, if you spend as much time thinking about biology as I have, you'll see that um, there are a lot of reasons why it should be predictively considerably more powerful than, say, economics. Um, And you might also find um, a basis for concluding that economics can't, as a matter of fact, attain to a very high level of predictive accuracy that um, there are limits to the very our variability to frame us a, a scientific theory of economic behavior
0: yeah, well i want to come back to biology in a minute uh and i and i want to try to lead us there with a couple of questions about predictability i just before we do that i i want to mention uh register disagreement with your uh, with your argument which i think is, it's an interesting argument i think it's commonly held by most economists so i to be fair to you, I don't know how much you accept it as, as, relative to how much you were standing in for the economist's viewpoint, which is that the framework, through its assumptions of competitiveness, asymmetric, uh, symmetric information, no, as- no information asymmetries, no externalities, uh, etc., homogeneous goods, that this opens up um, the toolkit for government intervention in a way to lead us toward allocative efficiency, and. Given that you invoked uh, Buchanan and Tullock in talking about institutional design, of course, they were very important figures in pointing out – seminal figures in pointing out that what government does versus what economists think it should do are not the same thing. And I think in many ways economics through its focus on efficiency and inefficiency, that is through the focus on how well the price system works, but it requires this assumption. And if this assumption doesn't hold, therefore this intervention is justified, I think that's given – Government a uh, a frequently uh, useful rationalization for intervention that doesn't move us toward efficiency, but rather serves the politically powerful. What's what's called public choice.
1: Yeah, so, that's, that's the great the the great insight of the wildly misnamed public choice yeah. theory. <laughs> <It's> a <bad laughs> I mean, it's, the theory of public choice is the theory of how private choices deflect public choices or, or public decisions. But and and of course. We understand all too well why governments fail often to act in the interests of the governed owing to considerations that Tullock and Buchanan and other, you know, uh, Jeff Brennan and other important public choice theorists um, have themselves identified.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let, let's move on to this question of predictability, uh, and, which I think is is a subtle and, and difficult question. I struggle with it myself. I'm going to start with micro. We'll move on to macro, I hope, at the end, which I think is even um, – I actually think is easier to, to think about. But let, let's talk about uh, micro. One of the standard predictions, and I'll put that words, word in quotes, one of the standard predictions of microeconomic theory is that a binding price control produces uh, – a Brian price ceiling produces a shortage, mm-hmm. and i I taught at um I taught at Stanford in the uh in the mid eighties, and i I had a research a, a teaching assistant who I found was telling my students uh, very different things in his office hours than I was telling my students, which was fascinating, and asked him why he would do that. I was teaching that when price was below the market clearing price, that that would result in a shortage, and that in turn would usually, uh, depends on the institutional rules, but would often result in in lines, in queues, in waiting, mm-hmm. and that time would allocate the good along with money, and that the full price would actually be higher if you included the money price and the time price, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, certain standard results of, of microeconomics. Uh, his reaction was he had been told differently in his micro class. He was being taught by a, a game theorist. And he told me with great assurance that he had learned that anything could happen. And I thought, well, I suppose <laughs> that's true. Um, but if we put a price control – because cause for many reasons, of course, anything could happen. Intervening events, right, changes, sure. and all kinds of things. Um, but he was being taught a, what I what you might call a non-equilibrium theory of economics. And I said, well, uh, let's make a bet. Uh, let's suppose if the government were to put on at that time, let's say the price of bread was two dollars. Was a say a dollar a loaf? If the if the government tomorrow announced that bread would be ten cents, uh, that no one could charge more than ten cents uh, a loaf for fifty cents a loaf, something well below the current price. Do you think a line would form, and how long would it take, or do you think you wouldn't be sure anything could happen? Maybe there'd be no line, and everything would be the same as it was before. And he he of course being a student and being told by someone smarter than than I was uh, that anything could happen. He said, well, yeah, anything could happen. I wouldn't want to bet for sure what would happen. (laughs) And now when I said I'm confident, my confidence was partly based on the pictures that I drew for my students of supply and demand and some kind of equilibrium. And and when pressed today, I will tell – not pressed. I tell my students this is a – useful fiction there's not one price of bread there's many different kinds of bread even for a particular kind there's price variation for many reasons we could talk about but i'm still pretty confident that this framework of thinking about competition even though there aren't an infinite number of goods even though there aren't even though all qualities are the same even though not all consumers and Well sellers, let me cut you
1: short i agree with you now here's the connection to prediction um, once we have established, say, the generic prediction, as I called it in a paper that I wrote right around the time I wrote that eighty-four paper, you started with. If we start with a generic prediction that um, uh, price controls produce queues um, and uh, shortages, the next step, the next natural step in the process. Um, of science is to quantify the prediction. Exactly, how much that, was of a shortage... yeah. <laughs> that was my next question. Yeah, pardon me, that was my next question. How much of a shortage, and when will the shortage obtain? And and how long will it take for the shortage to be remediated? And will the result eventually be a surplus? Uh, and if so, exactly how much and how long will it take for that surplus to occur? And will the result of that surplus be a subsequent another shortage? And how much will that of a shortage will that be, and when will it occur? The process whereby we move from generic to uh, specific predictions, something that is characteristic, for example, of meteorology in our own time, um, and of agronomy, agriculture, and of a variety of different biological phenomena. So that process is one that we have never seen in economics. And if we get a lot more specific and say... Uh, given uh, the law of supply and demand and the shape of demand curves, there are elasticities and cross elasticities and income and elasticity uh, effects of the sort you might find in what used to be called the Slutsky equation. Yeah. Um, the, there's a natural research program that suggests itself of attempting to establish the values of those parameters and variables and to actually determine the shape of that curve. And you and I both know, as economists and students of economics, two things. First, that no economist has ever successfully established uh, the values of those variables for uh a reasonable range of commodities over a reasonable time period, and that we now know, indeed, we could have known back in the 40s when these kinds of projects may have suggested themselves why they cannot be accomplished.
0: Well, there was a large research program, of course, that tried to estimate elasticities. elasticities, And by that, uh, for the non-economists out there, it's basically a, that's one particular way of measuring how responsive people's purchasing dem- demands are to changes in price.
1: So- yeah, it's like it's like actually determining the. Shape, the exact shape of the, da- of the downward sloping demand curve. Exactly how quickly does it slope downward? What is its slope at each point? And how does that slope change over time? So thousands of hours,
0: price? thousands of hours, maybe yeah, tens of thousands, hour. hundreds of thousands, were spent on that enterprise. And I think what we learn. one of the things we learned from that, perhaps, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, is that some goods are more responsive <laughs> than others, uh, which to which uh, many people would re- reply, yeah, uh, so what? Um, but wh- I'm curious why you think that project was a failure. C- certainly they could have said in defense of it, well, it's approximate, it's close, it's in the ballpark. Why do you think it was a failure and why do you think we should have known that in advance?
1: I think that the reason it was a failure was that the demand curve's are intertemporally unstable to the degree that once you establish one with elasticities at a given time for a given commodity, its usefulness in predicting consumer behavior in the next period uh, is relatively weak and gets weaker as subsequent periods um, uh, occur. I think that the technology for establishing these values, the, the difficulty, the cost Uh, uh, combined with the limited usefulness of them, literally useful maybe from a week to a week or something like Hmm. that, made it uh, 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 a mug's game to actually do this work. And what's worse, of course, the intervention of new products, new tastes, um, uh, and uh, various kinds of complementaries and substitutions among consumer durables. uh, Anybody who understood that deeply enough understood how pointless it was to try to calculate elasticities because even if you got them right, it was for a particular commodity at a particular time in a particular market and nothing of much interest followed, certainly nothing precise enough to enable you to make a dollar followed about uh, the market demand and supply of Even a closely similar, similar commodity in the next week. Even if it was gasoline prices or barrel or, or bags of wheat, it turned out that this, this entire enterprise was always overtaken by events at such a rate that it was never worthwhile doing the empirical work necessary. Now what does that suggest? Does that suggest that... We just um, need better techniques. (laughs) <laughs> Does it suggest better? Look, it could suggest better techniques. It could, it yeah. could suggest that your theory—you got the wrong theory altogether. We don't need this theory. This is not um, the uh, the way in which to produce a predictively powerful uh, science of human economic behavior. Or it might be the even more radical conclusion that there is no such theory within reach of human beings. That's of course the Austrian. Uh,
0: yeah, that would conclusion. be the critique of Hayek in 1945, "The Use right. of Knowledge in Society," a paper mm-hmm. I reference here about every seven shows. But uh, well, well bas-
1: that's <laughs> funny because I think about it almost every other day. Yeah, Vernon I think Smith that's the, probably the single most important
0: paper in the Austrian tradition. In yeah, Vietnam. no doubt. And and Vernon Smith um, uh, confessed to having read it numerous numerous times when when I interviewed him uh, about it. And uh, I've written. It's much more important than the road to serfdom. I agree. It's the
1: reason that Hayek should be celebrated
0: as a great economist,
1: and not the silly um, uh, claims made on his behalf by um, uh, conservatives and Republicans to try to sandbag economic uh, responses to our current political economic. Uh, downturn.
0: Well, I agree with the first part of that. I'm not. I know quite, you do. I'm I not was, quite was, sure about the second. Well, I well,
1: come, the maybe, we'll,
0: second. maybe we'll come back to that because I'm am not, not. I'd like to hear those some of those specifics. It's certainly. Uh, it's certainly true that Hayek and all great thinkers are used for political purposes, sometimes in ways that are not fair to their uh, origin. But um, let's go to let's go to biology. Because I've, and I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about biology, and I've spent a little time, which, uh, as Pope said, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Uh, I want to make a claim, and I want to get your reaction to it. My claim is that the essence, uh, the value of economics, I don't know whether it's a science or not, uh, to the extent it is a science, it is like the science of biology. And I will leave for you to talk about the science of biology, but by that I mean that it, economics is a very powerful way of helping us think about complex systems where things are interconnected. And I've written and been maligned occasionally by um, bloggers. I have written that uh, just as we would never ask a biologist to predict how many uh, beavers would be alive in an ecosystem if we chopped down 20% of the trees in this region because that's – something that biology isn't good at predicting similarly we should not ask economics to do something it's incapable of doing which is if the government spends an extra 820 billion dollars it'll create uh, 1.7 million jobs or 1.74 million jobs and i say that because one i'm not sure of the value of the underlying theory that leads to that prediction and since i can't confirm it through observation and empirical tests that is five or ten years from now, when I go to check the beaver population, so many things have changed in the meanwhile that I don't have data on. I can't confirm if my original theory was correct. I have that same problem with macroeconomics and therefore I'm left with the real reality. The economics is not good for many of the questions that people demand it to answer, uh, demand for it to answer, but that does not mean economics is useless, just like biology is not useless. What's your reaction to that?
1: I think my reaction is that You underplay the predictive powers of economic theory, of biological theory, excuse me. (laughs) Oh, Um, (laughs) few. And and that the reasons why uh, some biological processes are uh, uh, predictively recalcitrant are on a continuum with reasons why many uh, economic predictions are likely to be overtaken by events and to prove either useless or um, uh, falsified, um, and there are some further variables uh, that complicate economics' uh, 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 recalcitrance to predictive improvement. So let me walk through that. First of all, um, it's certainly the case that the biological processes um, have a kind of instability um, that is also to be found in economics, and we understand that instability very well. It's basically the arms race instability um, of strategic interaction. It happens that in the biological realm, the realm controlled by natural selection, that um, adaptations inevitably become part of the environment, which... Filter for new adaptations. The random variation that produces traits that then get filtered by the environment is the process whereby biological phenomena increase their adaptation, increase their fitness up to, uh, say, levels uh, close to uh, perfection in a very stable environment, give a biological system long enough, in a stable enough environment, and there will, by natural selection alone, be a very strong drive of the traits of the biological system to optimality. The trouble is that environments are not universally stable. Just like
0: economics, yeah. Well, over geological
1: time, there's a huge amount of stability. But uh, once... Uh, uh, organic phenomena, once biological phenomena, begin to be parts of the environments of one another, then each organism's trait becomes part of the environment of the other organisms that it's competing with, and the result is that it incites variation or at least selection among the random variants in the other organisms for ways of taking advantage of itself. And this is, of course, what produces the arms race. Arms races don't get really serious. That is to say, they don't become fast enough that we need to worry about them in understanding biological processes, probably until you get to the interaction of different species with one another, predator yeah, and sure. prey yeah. uh, interaction, for example. But even in the case of predators and prey, predictions are still possible, and that's why ecology um, is increasingly powerful a science, and we can make some reliable predictions about population densities over seasons. Uh, uh, I think you gave the example of beavers. Um, uh, in ecology, and it's just for the same reason that we've been able to to reliably predict the weather uh, over the last couple of years because of the combination of increased data points and cheaper um, uh, supercomputers similarly, we can do this increasingly in biology we can even predict in some cases uh, what's a likely DNA sequence um, that's going to be selected for by way of a, uh, uh, a mutant uh, bacterium by a uh, uh, um, a um, uh, a new pharmacology. So uh, well, at tr- the level of microbiology, we might say, like microeconomics, e- uh, uh, there are some. There's some significant improvement in predictive power. And even at the level of macrobiology in ecology, there are at least the prospects of a sim- similar improvements because our own calculating devices are improving faster than the arms, race, uh, environmental changes. And none of that is true in economics.
0: Well, I don't know. It it's reminds me of our earlier discussion. So let, let me challenge your Your conclusion, and see where what I'm missing. Um, With a small enough ecosystem, uh, and enough knowledge of the participants in the biological case, you're saying we could make some predictions about whether the population would grow or shrink in response to those exogenous exogenous changes, like yeah. We might even
1: be able to make predictions about the likely emergence of novel traits.
0: Yeah, okay, so that's cool, but you think you're going to get anything close to the – and that, I would argue, is not too dissimilar from saying if you put on a price ceiling, you get a shortage. You challenged that conclusion by saying, yeah, but how much of a shortage, how long would it take? Do you think we have made enough progress in, say – and I'm going to pick – A big enough ecosystem, because I don't want to talk about the microeconomics of my class. I want to talk about the market for gasoline. And then I want to go, so I want to go micro, micro, then micro, then macro. And similarly for biology, I want to go lab, ecosystem, and then interacting ecosystems. Do you think for an ecosystem such as, say, Yellowstone Park, uh, that we would have decent predictions about, say, the reintroduction of wolves, which was done in the last decade or so, and the impact on the elk population? Yes. I can, we can make some vague, general, qualitative predictions about the elk population. Can we make some quantitative ones?
1: I don't know um, at this point whether we actually are, whether wildlife ecologists actually are making quantitative predictions and seeing them borne out, but I can certainly anticipate that they will be able to in the foreseeable
0: future. Hmm. That's what people say about economics too, by the way. Really? (laughs) Yeah, no, they do. They say, uh, in fact, uh, Ricardo Reich, a guest on this program, a neo-Keynesian at Columbia, a first-rate scholar, said we've mastered monetary theory, but we need more time for fiscal uh, theory and we'll we'll get there eventually. I think – I disagree. I don't think we'll get there. Um, When I joked about being uh, criticized in the blogosphere, when I made that – I blogged on this point about beavers. Uh, somebody mocking, mocked me and said, "Oh, well, biologists do that all the time. They predict how many beavers are going to be in ten years." We're required by government law often to make predictions about what's going to happen. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I wrote the guy back. I said, "And what's the verifiability of that prediction? Very low. Very, very difficult. Ten years now, and certainly you wouldn't get the answer right, even if right. you could and, verify and it. Ten, and
1: ten years is probably too long. Too long. Um, and and my own view about economics is that." Um, at least in the case of macroeconomics, the impediments, the obstacles to a similar improvement in predictive power are merely ones of degree, not ones of kind. Meaning? Meaning that since I'm committed to the claim that, e- that biology either already does or will soon be in a position to make quantitative predictions about, say, predator-prey relations, similarly... Uh, There is no, in principle, no philosophical, no logical, no uh, causal obstacle to uh, predictions of the same kind among macroeconomists.
0: Which would be, for example, what would be an analogy there?
1: Um, Money supply and interest rate, uh, uh, short-term Phillips curve, um, um, Money supply and inflation. Uh, well, yeah, it,
0: well, money Although,
1: supply and interest rate, and money supply and inflation, um, my, uh, inflation and, and employment. Um, uh, I can well imagine that insofar as these macro relationships are symptomatic of um, traits of uh, adapted institutions which are competing with one another – um, and that w- might be in some uh, relatively short-term local equilibrium over a long enough time for economists to be able to calculate that those kinds of predictions are, at least in principle, possible. So, m- you know, I used to believe that um, it was impossible to uh, move economics from generic to specific predictions. Um, I'm now inclined to think it's just extremely difficult
0: yeah i don't know it's it's a It's an interesting question my uh i, I think um, the great moderation so-called great moderation, this period of economic uh relative economic calm between nineteen say eighty two and two thousand and eight mm-hmm. uh at the time that encouraged a lot of people. Uh, to believe that we had made fundamental progress in our ability to measure and um, and steer the macroeconomy—that's absolutely true. Uh, now, John Taylor, who's an important uh, part of that argument and who's been a guest on this program a number of times, would argue that the reason that we can't do that anymore is because we failed to learn the lessons of that time. But many others would argue that it's um, it was a a game we could not really play that we only thought And my thought we analysis
1: were is that it was a local a period of local um equilibrium between competing uh, economic forces which eventually broke down in an arms race and um it was the the breakdown the breakdown is is the uh, subprime mortgage uh um, denouement of nineteen of two thousand and eight and that is the result of uh, the the technological um, computational powers of traders exploiting the heuristics of uh, non uh, uh, non financial um, uh, economic agents looking for relatively safe places to put their investments, re- reaching a point where the, uh, the, non, the non-rational heuristic, uh, uh, economic agents realized that they had to, that they had to, had to start using the same tools as the people who were exploiting them.
0: Yeah, I I'd look at it differently, but I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to go into that, that now. Other than to point out that I think government policy that made it harder for people to bear their losses and keep their gains, particularly bear their losses, removed the natural forces that would have uh, made those analytical tools that were dangerous uh, less so. I, I and, agree with that absolutely. You know, Vernon Smith uh, really is the the right person here, and he's he's not won the day, but I think. He's won my day, obviously. Because yeah, I, I think you and I both ag- ag- have the same analysis it, of what happened. It, it fits my bias, so I have to be careful. But the, you know, the idea that markets—people make mistakes all the time—they get overly excited, they're prone to exuberance, but markets have a natural way of punishing that uh, when people get out of hand, and we've made it harder for markets to do that.
1: And, uh, I, and I see it as as arms race, and arms races always um, end in uh, some kind of a,
0: a, a re-established equilibrium. Let's close with with a different topic. Um, you're, you're a philosopher of science. You're interested in, in the philosophy of science. Most economists pay no attention, and I assume most scientists pay no attention to these kind of discussions. Absolutely. The, the well, most no, famous... most
1: economists don't, but many scientists do.
0: But the most famous work in the philosophy of science would be Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolution, at least in modern times.
1: No, oh, I, I, I can't agree with that. But Thomas Kuhn's book is, of course, an extremely important uh, work in the history of science, and it is one that has been used as a stick with which <laughs> to beat yeah. off the attack on non-scientific uh, disciplines with um, but I would hardly characterize it as the most important. I would accept it as the most influential think, book th- in this area.
0: I thought maybe I said maybe I should have said most famous, most okay. well known. Mm-hmm. Um, my crude estimate of science's response to that is negative. Right, most scientists don't find it uh, persuasive. Is that true?
1: That most scientists do not find Kuhn's analysis correct. of the nature of science scientific persuasive.
0: progress persuasive. Is I that think true? that's correct.
1: They certainly do not find the extreme version, the extreme interpretation of his view, which is common in the humanities and in some areas of interpretive social science, as plausible. However, Kuhn himself rejected that interpretation and was appalled throughout the last 20 years of his life at the way in which his views had come to be interpreted.
0: Interesting. But my general question is... um... Not that th- not that it's decisive or perhaps even important, but I'm just intrigued by the fact that um, philosophers study science and scientists and they're not studying ants, they're studying human beings. Right. And the human beings they're studying don't always pay much attention to it. What, what's your reaction to that?
1: Well, um, there's a, a, a famous quote of, that great philosopher of science who didn't think he was one, Richard Feynman, um, who once said that philosophy of physics is to physicists as ornithology is to birds. Um, and that was his way of writing off the discipline of the philosophy of science. Um, it was a wag, and I wish I was he, who said, <laughs> Well, yeah. in fact, physicists know about as much about the philosophy of physics as birds know about <laughs> ornithology. Yeah,
0: that's a good comeback. Um, and uh, come
1: back, <laughs> and, and um, I, I have to say that it's not the function of the philosophy of science to tell physicists what to do. Um, it's not even the function of philosophy of science to tell uh, chemists or even biologists what to do. Um, but there are problems in these disciplines, and biology is probably the best example, um, that are conceptual and that have attracted the interest of philosophers, and in which philosophers have made considerable contributions. And that's one reason why the biologists are inclined to um, listen to us, or at least to um, talk with us. And, if you know much about the history of physics in the last hundred years, especially uh, Einstein and quantum mechanics, you know about the influence of minds like Leibniz's and Barclay's, Bishop Barclay's, their influence on uh, the understanding of space and time, and um you know about the difficulties involved in the interpretation in making intelligible quantum mechanics uh, uh for the physicist to say shut up and do the calculations at the back of the chapter and that's all you need is probably safe and um uh effective uh as a it's discipline and of course it's good career?
0: it's good career advice for a graduate right. students and and this of course is what
1: the point that Kuhn made about normal science and the, the discipline it imposes, but science eventually and always finds itself faced with anomalies, and when it begins to be, to treat those anomalies as central, and this is Kuhn talking, um, the philosopher has a role to play. Now, ask yourself whether um, economics uh, as a discipline Rolling on from Smith through Valras to uh, um, uh, Samuelson and de and and almond and scarf and and arrow has yet to accept or recognize that there is an anomaly. Um, I suggest that there are some economists, of whom Paul Krugman is probably the best example, who are pounding their hands on the table and insisting there's a big, bad bug in our discipline, and we've got to figure out what to do with it. And insofar as Kuhn provided us with an account of how normal science develops into a revolutionary period, he may help us understand that this is one in economics. Now, um, are the economists going to solve their problems by paying attention to the philosophers? Well, it may concentrate their minds the (laughs) way the gallows. Um, It was said by Dr. Johnson to concentrate Mm -hmm. the mind wonderfully. Uh, But the solution isn't going to be found in the philosophy of science, and we don't purport to provide it. Um, That's not our function and uh, that wouldn't even count as good philosophy of science. Should economists pay attention to the philosophy of science? Um, a bit, but not a lot. The solution to their problems is not going to be found in our discipline. Um, uh, but that they have a problem, and uh, what the broad outlines of that problem and what blind alleys down which they shouldn't proceed in, Seeking solutions to that problem are, that's probably things that we can help on. Um, probably not me, because I don't do much of this anymore, uh, but I think if you think about the work of, say, Dan Hausman or an economist like Kevin Hoover um, uh, uh, or uh, any number of others, um, we're likely to, to say things that may jog the complacency of
0: the discipline. My guest today has been Alex Rosenberg. Alex, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the chance to think about uh, some of these questions again uh, and uh, think on my feet uh, (laughs) about them because uh, uh, they are very difficult questions to which there are to which the answers probably require a great deal more reflection than one can really devote to them in an exchange like this.
0: Here, uh, here. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to EconTalk dot org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette.